welcome to Tiny Voice Talks with me, Toria Bono. And today, Tiny Voice is talking about maths. But we're talking about the book, I Can't Do Maths. And when I read that initially, I thought, oh my goodness, what sort of book is that? I can't do maths. And then I unfurled it because it's why children say it and how to make a difference. And I'm joined today, and I'm so excited about this, by the authors of it, two people. I'm joined by Professor Alf Coles and Professor Natalie Sinclair. So welcome both of you. Thank, Thank you. you. It is so lovely to have you both here. It really is. Now, I'm going to start with a question that I always ask my guests, and I'm going to start with you, Alf. Who is Professor Alf Coles? Thank you. Well, fundamentally, I think of myself as a teacher. I taught for 15 years in secondary schools in in England before moving to a position at the University of Bristol, um, where my role primarily is is working with with new teachers, um, so teaching on a on a, a teacher education course. So I'm privileged to to engage in in that role in in research into maths education and working with wonderful international collaborators. But fundamentally, I, I see myself as a teacher. Fantastic. And Natalie, who is Professor Natalie Sinclair? Well, I also uh, began as a teacher, a middle school teacher here in British Columbia, and um, eventually became a professor at Simon Fraser University. And uh, still t- see myself as a teacher, still see myself as a learner, and a mom, and a friend, and a colleague and an apple orchard farmer. Wow, apple orchard farmer. That's very grand. I'm loving that. I'm imagining you with a sort of, you know, basket on your arm collecting apples from around the orchard. It sounds great. Yep. So, Alpha Natalie, the listeners are going to wonder, as am I, how on earth did you two come together, British Columbia and Bristol, to write this book, I Can't Do Maths? We have a number of... Um, colleagues in common, I guess, uh, that there's actually quite an interesting connection across um, various universities in England and, and Simon Fraser University uh, in Canada, where, where Natalie works. And it was through some of those common contexts, I guess, that, that, that we met and, 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 and at a conference. And we, we did, we've done a number of bits of writing together, um, mostly for academic journals. And, and then a couple of years ago, we had a conversation where we both recognized that that in our work with teachers, both of us work quite closely with teachers, we, we kept coming across a set of kind of assumptions, I suppose, about learning, which we felt were getting in the way. Uh, and, and in this book, we've called them dogmas. Um, so, so I think we're going to aim to go through the five dogmas we set out in this book. And, and what we mean by a dogma really is an idea that has some kernel of, of kind of... Um, use in it, uh, has a sort of historical basis, um, but is perhaps in this book we suggest becomes something, an unquestioned belief, sort of something taken to be truth, uh, which, 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 as I say, is, we believe, getting in the way of, so of the I progress. So I think our ideal learning. audience for the book Absolutely, was uh, definitely teachers. Sense. Now, before we, we go on to the dogmas, a lot of teachers and um, especially you were uh, with the book, teachers who help who um, you train other teachers. For? So we had those uh, two audiences in mind, but we were also hoping that um, teach uh, that parents might be interested in the book as a way of understanding um, their own children's mathematical experiences and what's going on in schools, because they're very important parts of the puzzle if we want to 
try to improve the way that we teach mathematics, since parents have had a lot of experience of their own experience, and they tend to um, want that experience repeated uh, for their own students. And so that's maybe, uh, you know, a, a, a kind of um, link that needs to be broken um, if we want to make some progress. Absolutely. And some of the dogmas are things that I have heard parents say, um, you know, that sort of things like matters for some people or not others, or, you know, I don't, you know, I don't do matter actually is something I've heard from parents at parents' evenings. And then we're going to start with the very first dogma because I've heard parents say this, you know, maths is a building block subject. And I hear teachers saying it all the time. But what you're saying is that actually that's not always true. Maths isn't always a building block subject. Yeah, I think if I if I pick up on that one, I, I, I think that was um, mm. we had a lot of discussions about which dogmas should be in the book and, and which shouldn't. And we had a longer list than the five. But, but this was this was always going to be one that was in there, I think. And. If you look at how maths is presented and how maths kind of, you know, cutting edge maths research is presented, it, it's always presented in a kind of building block way where you start um, from mm. sort of assumptions and you build towards your sort of conclusions. And, and maths textbooks tend to be built in that way, uh, written in that way, sorry. Um, so, so, so it's not that there's something wrong with this idea, but I think what we're trying to suggest in the book is just because maths is presented in this way and just because it makes logical sense to present it in that way, that doesn't necessarily mean that's the optimal way to learn it. Yes. I mean, optimal is maybe a funny word, but but, but let's, let's say a, a, a good way to learn it, an effective way to learn it. Um, and one analogy we make is with learning language. If you think about how we've all learnt uh, a language, we've learned that through being immersed in, in, in incredible complexity. And we've made sense mm. of that complexity and we've noticed patterns and we've, we, we've tried things out and, and, and we've over time uh, come to, to be comfortable in that complexity. And what we're suggesting in the book is that there are elements of that, um, that sense of being immersed in something uh, bigger that, that are actually can be really effective in learning mathematics as well. So we want to question the idea that, that just because, for instance, somebody's had a difficulty with a particular item of, of, of maths, that they should really keep working on that and, and shouldn't be exposed to something more complex. Um, because we've had lots of experience of teach as teachers where, where children have, have kind of, it's, it's felt like what they need is, is, is something bit bigger, something more complex, that when they've got stuck on something, it's not that they need something a bit simpler, they, they need something more complex to almost see like the big picture of, of what's, what's, what's being dealt with here in, in order to make sense of it. Um, so I suppose it's, it's the idea that actually learners have incredible powers of learning that they've used to, 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 to learn how to speak. And that we can be making use of some of this in the mathematics classroom with this idea of, of not, not trying to shield people, not, not trying to um, protect people for, for, from complex ideas, but, but, but immersing them in, in situations where, where they can spot patterns, they can notice things, that they can, they can come up with ideas, they can ask questions. Um, and, and maths can, can become something that you can be curious about and, and, and can be something joyful, I suppose. Yes. Sorry to interrupt you. I, I just thought that connected well with our second dogma about yes. uh, math always being right or wrong. I've talked about the first dogma. There are certain situations in which um, math can be perceived that way. Certainly um, computation in school, you know, around addition and multiplication, 
Um, there are situations in which, you know, three times five is 15, uh, for sure. Um, and, and, and that gets taken up as a fact. Um, but that's only one very small part of what mathematical activity is. So when Alf was talking about, um, you know, solving problems and coming up with patterns, those are not seen as right or wrong. Um, those are more seen as whether they're interesting or not, or whether they lead to um, interesting insights. And so how can we think about math in school as um, a place where students are invited to pose their problems and invited to see what the consequences of certain assumptions are? Um, so we, we, I think we provided several examples, but my favorite is always out of geometry. Um, in geometry, we like to define certain um, shapes and those get taken as being right or wrong. But actually, a definition mm. is just a hypothesis about something. And you can change your definition and then see what happens under this new definition. What new relationships do you see? What new ideas? So it's really this idea of how the consequences relate to the assumptions and that, that's the strong tie that we really wanted to talk about in the book. Um, that's a little bit different than thinking about just right or wrong. And I found that really refreshing as a teacher to read because actually that makes, you know, it goes back to that curious learner. It makes it exciting for the children in the classroom if there isn't necessarily a right or wrong. But I was just thinking when Alf was talking and when, and when you were talking, Natalie, about the fact that actually the mathematics curriculum that I have taught for a number of years is one in which we do have building blocks. You know, you need to have achieved this bit before you do this bit. And there's a, a, a really strong sense of mm -hmm. it's either right or it's wrong. And it's really hard to feel empowered as a teacher to break away from something that is there in black and white that we're meant to, to be doing. Does that make sense? I mean, I think one of the things we talk about, in fact, I think in one of the later chapters is, is a shift from asking questions like, what's seven times eight, where there is a right or wrong answer in our normal base 10 system, yeah. to questions like, how would you work out seven times eight? Yeah. Where there's much less a sense of a right or wrong answer about that. It's a question that, you know, if I ask you what's seven times eight, it's a very bizarre kind of question where I kind of know the answer mm. already that I want. But but asking you how would you work out seven times eight, I, I have no idea what you're going to say. And I'm, I, I'm genuinely curious about that. Um, so I think part of it is is shifting the kind of questions that, that we ask yeah. of, of students with much more of a focus on methods than, than answers. Um, and, and I think another aspect is that, you know, a student giving an answer that's not one that you, you, you agree with. So if I ask you what's, what's three times three and you tell me mm -hmm. six, well, well it, it might not be that, that you've, you've got that wrong. It might be that you're thinking about multiplication in a different way. And, and, and actually, there's a much more interesting conversation we might have about what's the definition of multiplication compared to addition that, that, than if I just am thinking of your answers purely in terms of are they right or are they wrong. And actually, that leads perfectly onto something that I found fascinating within the book, because I'm all about etymology. And it was actually what the word multiplication meant, and the way we look at multiplication in the West. 
Yeah, it's absolutely fascinating the way the different ways and different cultures largely related to language that we have of thinking about mathematical concepts. Mm. So multiplying comes from the Latin root of multi, which is many, implying, which is folding. Mm-hmm. And even just hearing that, that it's about multiple folding can give you a whole bunch of imagery. I don't know about you, but I'm thinking about paper yeah. being folded over and over again. That makes me understand um, multiplication in in a different way that isn't about um, finding the correct um, computational answer, but is about understanding it as an operation and a transformation. And in other cultures, um, for example, in um, Turkey, the word for multiplication actually means is crash. And for them, multiplication isn't the sort of groups of idea that we tend to use in um, English-speaking countries, but it's about more the Cartesian coordinate system. So when you have um, horizontal and vertical lines um, intersecting, Mm -hmm. we could think of those as intersections, which is kind of boring, but if we think of them as crashing, it becomes all of a sudden um, electrifying, you know, to to think about multiplication. So if I'm thinking of three times five in in Turkey, I'm imagining three horizontal lines intersecting five vertical lines, and those create 15 crashes um, in, in the plane, and that's how they multiplication. That's fascinating. I've always wondered what those lines are. And that makes complete sense now. And I'm loving the fact that's crashes. I might. Yeah, that's amazing. That yeah. Sorry. Well, you like it. But but just imagine grade four kids, how much they love it. Yeah. But it's it is it's looking at something in a different way. And I think we we don't necessarily look at maths in a different way all the time. And what you're saying, the dogmas are, we need to. So, sorry, I went off on a tangent there, people. I apologize, but just got rather excited. Um, who wants to take another dogma? Yeah, well, what you were just saying seems to connect really well to the, the third dogma, which is that maths is culture-free. Um, so I think we've just given a beautiful example in which, yes, three times five is always 15, basically, no matter where you go in the world. Um, but much more interestingly is how we understand and think about three times five. And that can be quite different in different parts of the world and um, located in certain practices and traditions and values um, that are very different and really Um, You know, three times five is something your calculator can do and has been able to do for decades now. So that clearly is not the interesting part of of mathematics. What's interesting is how we understand it, how we communicate it. And um, some cultures are learning about it in a different way can help some children understand aspects of mathematical concepts that they that, you know, that that their own sort of language doesn't help them understand And Elf and I have been very interested, for example, in some of the indigenous languages Mm -hmm. that we find both in in Canada and Australia and New Zealand that use very verb-based ways of thinking about mathematical concepts. Mm -hmm. So a square is a noun, and, um, you know, so it's pretty static, doesn't do anything, doesn't have much of a personality. Um, But in Mi'kmaq, which is an indigenous language in eastern Canada, to squaring is actually a verb and it's about going around a a plot of land uh, in four equal steps um, uh, around right angles. 
So it, it mobilizes all these ways of understanding that might be more kinesthetic, might even be more visual, might help you connect to experiences that you've had in the world. And in that sense, maths is definitely not <laughs> culture-free, um, but is imbued with all sorts of um, cultural connections. Wow. So, Alf, do you want to take on the next dogma, which is maths is for some people, not others? Yeah, sure. Thank you. And one of the things we do in the book is for each of the dogmas, we look a little bit about the history of where this idea has come from. Mm -hmm. And with that idea, maths is for some people, not others, we trace it back to the rise of intelligence testing from a, from yeah. a couple of hundred, well, a hundred or so years ago. Um, and there's a really very um, uh, distressing sort of origin to, to some of that thinking, which which was really linked to a quite colonial and racist agenda of trying to show that somehow the white population was the, the sort of top of, of the apex of intelligence of all species. Um, and you know, IQ tests and intelligence tests themselves have really been been, been largely discredited now, uh, or, or at least shown to, to to hide very distressing assumptions about sort of middle class origins and the sort of myth of the perfect child being this kind of kind of kind of middle class child that, that that does well at school and and is able to access what's on intelligence tests, and and we really see that sort of history of trying to differentiate and, and demarcate people and, and, and place some people on, on, a, on a sort of lower standing than others as being really quite directly linked to the categorization that, that goes on in, in many schools in England and, and I think in Canada as well. Yeah. Um, you know, that there are many staff rooms today where you'll hear talk about my highers and, and my lowers and, and you know, high ability, low ability, it, it's kind of become this unquestioned way of talking and talking about children and differentiating children uh, that, 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 that we trace to, 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 the, to this really very, very distressing and, 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 and very violent past. Um, and, and one that, that, that I think has, has, has no basis uh, in reality, really. Um, that, that, of course, uh, some some children show more interest in some subjects. Of course, some children pay more attention to some subjects uh, and, and, and will end up, therefore, displaying behaviours that, that we interpret uh, linked to ability. Um, but we, we really want to, 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 to question that um, and question, I suppose, the whole idea that 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 you know intelligence is something that that I own that somehow individually me and, and somehow defines me. Uh, we talk in the book about working towards a more communal idea of mathematics, the yeah. idea that we're actually learning together, and and that what we learn is is intimately linked to to the environment that we're in, the tools that we have available to us, uh, the, the the others that that, that are around us that, that we're working with. Um, so yeah, it's, it's a really important dogma dogma for us to to to, to try and unpick. I think it's an absolute vital dogma to unpick because I think for some reason maths more than any other subject seems to be that one that you either are put in the camp that you can do it or you can't do it. And actually it's not black and white. And that's what worries me. But, but I think you're absolutely right. It goes back to that history where it was very much you can or you can't you know, and that's why we've still got, I've still got parents today that will tell me, oh, well, you know, they can't really do maths because I'm not very good at it. 
It, it's maybe also part of um, this way we've agglomerated um, actually quite a number of different subjects into one um, word, which is mathematics. Yeah. And, and um, mathematics and maths actually has an S at the end. That means it's plural. And that means there's lots of different kinds of mathematics. And one thing Elf and I have noticed frequently is that Yes, there are some kids who who sort of don't gravitate uh, or don't feel very confident about crunching numbers, but you get them doing a geometry task and they just shine. Mm. So, is it true that they can't do math, or is it, or is it that they're, you know, they they kind of like geometry more than they like number? And actually, mathematicians are like that too. There are many mathematicians who, who you know, don't like certain parts of mathematics and prefer others. So maybe we, we need to develop a new vocabulary instead of, you know, I can't do math. Maybe it's like, I can't do number now, but I really like geometry. Or I, I, I'm not interested in geometry now, but probability is, is pretty interesting to me, you know, given some of the things that are happening in our world, let's say. And, and maybe breaking that down might be a helpful way for students to find a place in mathematics that feels comfortable to them. Is it okay if I ask a bizarre question? Do you think the hyper-focus, I'm going to say of schools here, I don't know about schools in Canada, but I'm definitely going to say the hyper-focus of schools here seems to be on number. Do you think that hyper-focus then de-skills children in the other aspects of maths? Because as you say, it's not one singular focus. Absolutely. And and uh, I, I'm, I'm somebody who really likes geometry, yeah. as you can probably tell, <laughs> and uh, have, been, have been working quite a bit, actually, all my career on, on trying to... Um, introduce teachers to more geometric activities that they could do and and show how valuable it could be for for student learning and recently well about 10 years ago I began working with colleagues such as Brent Davis on spatial reasoning and what the research is showing is that um, children who develop spatial reasoning skills actually do better not only in in geometry but in anything related to number and tend to um, be better in all the STEM fields as well. So that spatial um, power that we have of being able to imagine things or transform things um, it is really, really important. We, we, really, we don't yet understand exactly why, um, but it, it does worry me sometimes when I see so much focus on number that um, we're not only not helping children develop their spatial reasoning, but we might even be squashing it. And I think for me, that question about the predominance of number actually links quite nicely to to our fifth dogma, which Mm. is maths is hard because it's abstract in that I I think that there's an idea that children have to learn number first before they can do anything to do with algebra, for instance, and and perhaps to an extent in geometry as well. Um, and, and, and it kind of links back to the very first dogma that maths is a building block subject. There's this idea that, that, that number is this sort of fundamental building block. Um, and actually, I, I think there's lots of evidence and, 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 and different curricula around the world that, that show there can be a real power, actually, in, in, lessening, in, in, in lessening that focus on number. And, and there, are, there are certainly curriculum um, organizations in, in Russia and being tried in, in, in America as well, where algebra comes before arithmetic. 
um, wow. where, where children work on relationships such as greater than or less than and start working, if you like, on a kind of generalized arithmetic, perhaps would be another way of saying it, where, where, where they work on trying to relate different measurements to each other and trying to say, you know, which one's bigger. Um, how, how, you know, if, if two lengths make one other length, then, then, then the first length is, you know, subtract the other length, it gives the third one. Working on awareness of these kind of more general structures before necessarily needing to, to work and, and count with them. And, and, and what, what some of the evidence shows is, is that some children can find that, that work easier than, 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 than the number work and, and, and the counting. Um, and I suppose another aspect of this is also linking back to thinking about our learning of language, mm. that if, if you think about even a simple noun like a chair, you know, that, that's, that's an arbitrary word. It, it's different words in different languages. It, it's, it's standing for this potentially kind of infinite set of objects, and, and, and it picks out individual ones. Well, well, that's a pretty abstract idea, actually, that, that you've got this kind of label for, 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 for an infinite set. And, and there's not much more that algebra is doing than saying, well, I'm just going to call this, you know, we, we've got potentially any number here, and I'm just going to call it an X or an N. So, so, so the idea that abstract thinking is hard for people, I think, is also really wrong, yeah. because I think we, we've had to think in really abstract ways to learn a language. And, and so this idea that children, again, you know, you know, linking back to the building block idea, children need to be shielded from abstract ideas, I, I think is something that, that actually has, has, has no basis uh, if, if you actually observe how children work and play. Completely. Yeah, just chiming in there, if it's okay, I did the uh, around that last dogma. I think um, that the idea that math is hard is because it's abstract is is almost something that we've um, created um, because of our um, understanding of what it means to be like rational and smart, which is that. Uh, and and this is um, was perpetuated, I think, by readings of Piaget, which is. Um, you work in levels where essentially every time you go up a level, you're becoming more and more sort of disconnected um, from the world, from your body, from, from motion, from, from visualization and so on until you can do it all in your head. Um, and that led um, to a, a lot of people telling teachers, Oh, don't let the kids use their hands because that's going to, you know, keep them in some kind of infantile way of thinking about mathematics so abstract became something that you had to do um, without any connection or relation to the world. And I think as we rethink what, what we mean by, um, you know, understanding some of these mathematical concepts, which at first might be um, unusual and, and not have any relation to um, our experiences, that we can build those uh, relationships by telling stories about them, by being able to visualize them, by being able to touch them. Um, by looking at the what their wor- the words mean and and so on, and that we're, we're really trying to work at developing those relations um, and and um, counting um, important mathematical understanding as involving uh, the 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 body and the emotions and um, cultural aspects as well. The thing that's pinged into my head is the concrete pictorial abstract approach to maths, which, you know, we 
talk about so much with the maths class and the fact that, you know, if you're wanting to teach children an abstract principle that you need to actually provide them with something concrete and then pictorial. Would you still say that's absolutely vital in order to understand the abstract? Or would you say not so much? I mean, my response to that would be that what's important is that those three are all around from the beginning. okay. So so what I think is unhelpful is the idea that we have to move from concrete to pictorial to abstract. Right. It's not like a set of stairs. Right. Absolutely not. Absolutely not. And and they kind of enrich and support each other. Uh, And and so it's important that that we we, we try and have all of them around at at, at the same time. Um, Yeah. I mean, I don't know what what you'd say, Natalie. No, I agree. I mean, I I think uh, we we know from research that if um, we don't make those connections between the 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 concrete, the pictorial, and the symbolic, um, that that kids get nothing out of the experience yeah. with the concrete, um, because they it doesn't become mathematics until the connection, until the relation is there. So in in our book, we um, give the example of work with um, the app called Touch mm-hmm. Counts, where you have the, the the visual there, you have the auditory there, you have the symbol there. So it's all there at the same time. And rather than working in this step-by-step thing that you alluded to earlier. Yeah, because I think there was definitely a period where it was very much you need to do the concrete, then you do the pictorial, then you do the abstract. And this is how we move and you mustn't do anything before anything else. And actually, <laughs> what I found with your book is your book is saying, well, actually, there isn't necessarily an order. The or- the thing is, whatever is right for the child in that moment. But actually, what really hit me reading your book is that we need a real expertise as teachers in order to know exactly what to provide that learner with, don't we? I, I think that's right. I mean, one of the examples that, that we offer um, is an example from, from an educator called Bob Davis, and it's the way he introduces mm. negative numbers that I think I can just briefly explain where we... If you imagine a child at the front of the class with a bag of stones and Bob Davis asks the, ask another student, um, how many stones do you want to put in the bag? And, and somebody says, let's say five, and he puts in five and he writes a five on the board. And then he says to another student, how many stones do you want me to take out of the bag? Um, this is actually somewhat some way down. He, he does pre- some, some other work before then. And, and, and another student says six. Mm. And so he takes six bag, six stones out of the bag and, and writes a takeaway six on the board. And, and then his question is, well, are there more stones in the bag now uh, than when we started or are there less? Wow. Yeah. And you can really concretely see there has to be less, right? You've put five in and you've taken six out. There has yeah. to be less. It's really, it's really concrete that there's one less. And, and he writes that as a negative one on the board. And he's doing this with five or six-year-old children uh, yeah. where the kind of, you know, Orthodoxy would say they, you know, the idea of a negative is too abstract for them. They, they and, and there's this video of them working and the children working very happily with these negative numbers. Um, so there's this mm. concrete situation that is symbolised in a way that brings out a really abstract idea in a very natural way. So, 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 so it's not even like these things are in opposition or work against each other. But, but actually, we can if if we think carefully enough. We can devise situations where the concrete and the pictorial and the abstract all support students' understanding of mathematical concepts. 
Yeah. And what you've touched on there, actually, which I'm really grateful for, is the fact that your book is also full of practical ideas for the classroom. So actually, that knowledge that I alluded to that we need to have is within the pages of your book. So that's really helpful. I'm, I'm very grateful. Thank you, both of you. Oh, thank you. Thank you. So have you got a dogma that you think is the primary one for you? Yeah, I, I think, again, um, if, if I think about it in relation to our audience, I think the first dogma is, is stand out. Um, and it's partly because of the reactions that I've heard and, you know, things I hear from uh, uh, prospective teachers. That's the one that they're really um, shocked by, literally shocked by. Yeah. Um, often, you know, we had one person say, wait a minute, like for 30 years, I've been assuming that this is, and you're telling me that it's not like this, like, how can you do that to me? (laughs) And it was, it was uh, more of a reaction than I think we ever anticipated. And so in a way, that's my favorite, because I, I see how it really resonates. And, and if you rethink that dogma, it could really have a lot of repercussions on sort of everyday aspects of your practice. And so that that's my favorite in the sense of um, thinking about the audience. Yeah, absolutely. It is mind blowing the fact that maths is not necessarily a building block subject. So yes. And what about you, Alf? Yeah, it's a tricky one. I mean, I think, um, I suppose from a kind of social justice angle, the idea that maths Mm. is for some people and not others seems to me a a really significant one. Um, And it seems a really hard, I mean, one of my brothers is is a professional musician. And and I suppose that's another one, a bit like maths, where where we often think people have sort of God-given talents somehow. You know, my experience growing up was was my brother practicing the flute for eight hours a day. So, so, so it seems to me, it, it's you know, what yeah. what came first, this this kind of talent for 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 playing the flute, or, or this you know almost obsession to to do something for eight hours a day. You know, really for, 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 from age fourteen and, and, and until he mm. till he got a job as a as a professional. Um, and I think it's a little bit the same with maths. That I think it can be very easy to think like, oh, it's just to do with talent. Where it seems to me, it's much more to do with. Uh, you know, experiences that I've had with the subject, uh, sort of in, encouragement or, or its opposite that I get from, from my environment. And, you know, as a teacher, I consistently had an experience of children who, who were, were really like, you know, you, you'd pick them out as the top mathematician aged 14, who, who really weren't at the top of the class aged 18, uh, you, know, you know, where perhaps the maths, maths at 14 w- w- was about every, the subject coming really easily to them and, and, and what, they, what they didn't learn or get out of it w- was the sense of struggle and, and needing to work at it. And it was actually maybe the children who found it a little bit harder who, 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 who got into it and, and, and made successes of it at, at A-level. So, so I think that for me is a really important one, that it's, it's just so important as teachers we don't we, we try and avoid categorizing people and, 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 mm. and assuming that, that people are just not very good at a subject. Absolutely. So as you both know, I will not release you from the podcast until you have answered my final question. So I'm coming to you first, Alf. If you could have been taught by anyone, living or dead, who would have been your perfect teacher? Well, I don't know about a perfect teacher, but the person who um, I would say is a man called Dick Tata, um, mm-hmm. who was um, 
an Armenian teacher who, who came over to England um, and was incredibly influ- influential in maths education in England, uh, who I got to know a little bit towards the end of his life. And he actually came in and, and taught uh, one of my classes in, in the, um, oh, wow. I don't know, I guess 2003 or four or something when I was still teaching in secondary school. Um, he, he was Stephen Hawkins' teacher. And when Stephen oh, wow. Hawkins was invited to um, introduced the Global Teaching Awards. He, he talked about the influence of, of Dick Tartar on, on his own mm-hmm. mathematical development. Um, and Dick just somehow had an extraordinary way of, of making the subject engaging uh, and, and making it appear just a really vital and, 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 and significant and, and important su- subject to, to, to be working on. And I think it would have been incredibly exciting to, to have been taught by him. Absolutely. And what about you, Natalie? Well, I also have a difficult time coming up with a, a single person. And when I'm thinking about your question, I'm thinking about people who I've, I've learned um, with. So my ideal teachers, and it's always been somebody that is doing the thing that I'm trying to learn. Yeah. So I'm, I'm learning it, uh, you know, a, beside what they're doing. And this happened to me with a math teacher I had in high school. It happened to me with my supervisor for my PhD. It's happened to me countless times with teachers in the classroom watching them in action and um, seeing sort of how they make choices about things. And in in all cases, this sense of humility about how they don't know it all yet either. Oh, I love that. And I think great additions to the, the Tiny Voice Talk School. Thank you so much, Alpha Natalie, for coming on the podcast and talking to me about maths. And I'm really hopeful that the listeners will now know why children say that and how they can make a difference. Listeners, I will put the link to the book on the um, show notes for you. And I will put links as well to Natalie and Elf so that you've got those. So thank you so much, Natalie and Elf, for coming on and talking to me. Thanks for the invitation.